Well, we are still in the Thanksgiving season, and I think it's only appropriate that we talk about something that we can be thankful for. I want to talk this morning about experiencing the gospel. Experiencing the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is defined as what? The good news. The good news. And we have a lot to experience in good news. So I want to talk about that today. And I want to talk about how we can enjoy that, how we can enjoy the experience and what it really means to have salvation extended to us through the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. I want to take the time to talk and walk through a little bit what the gospel of Jesus really is to us and how we should live in that light. To really experience the freedom of the gospel, we must understand what it means to live for the long term, to live for the promise that we have in looking forward to someday walking the streets of heaven. Heaven is a favorite topic of mine. I just love to think about it. I love to talk about it. I was thinking about this message this week, and I found myself once again fast-forwarding my life to that day when I will see heaven for the first time and trying to imagine what I'm going to see and experience. It's going to be breathtaking. But I know that it's hard for some people to look down the road like that when things are so encompassing sometimes and so overwhelming in the here and now that we have a hard time beginning to see tomorrow. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to get through today. It reminded me of a scene in the movie Apollo 13. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but if you have, maybe you can relive this scene with me. In that movie, Tom Hanks, just an actor, he was the commander of Apollo 13. And this spacecraft was on a trip to the moon that was intended to land and walk on the moon. This was early in the uh, moon launching, in the Apollo life. And they were well on the way. They, they were a long ways from Earth, the safety of Earth, and, and they weren't to the moon yet, but the spacecraft was crippled. It had a malfunction, and it was a very serious malfunction, and, and all three astronauts were very close to death. They were living, basically, on a lot of hope in believing that what was happening with ground control in Houston was really going to make a difference for them. And it was a really exciting movie if you've watched it. The, the thing that's so exciting about it is that it was true, that it really happened, that these things really did occur. I spent a little bit of time when I was in college at, at, at Johnson Space Center in Houston when the space shuttle program was just being uh, and birth, and I got to saw, I got to see some of the things in, in the Johnson Space Center, and I and I was in the room where this took place. I was in Control Center there, and I could see it, and it was all there the same. I mean, what's so amazing about the space program is that the technology that they were working with this was happening in the 60s, and the technology was older than that. So it's really an amazing thing that we sent men to the moon not preaching about the moon. But what happened in that spacecraft, though, is what I'm talking about, because these gentlemen, these astronauts, 
were very, very, very close to dying. It came back, that ship came back basically powerless. And as it, as it circled the moon, it, it, it circled around the moon to slingshot back to earth. And it came back in and, and it had one opportunity to make it back in the earth's atmosphere. They had just enough power left in, in one of their rocket boosters that it could make a slight adjustments manually to, to aim up the angle perfectly so they could re-enter Earth's atmosphere. If they missed, it would have ricocheted off the atmosphere and these men would have been lost forever in outer space. And it was very tense. These guys were very uptight. And the scene that I want to talk about today is when the spacecraft finally made it back and it was sitting in the ocean bobbing in the ocean and the the scene that really gripped me in that movie was when Tom Hanks when they opened the hatch and for the first time Tom Hanks saw the sun again remember they were almost freezing to death they didn't have oxygen I mean they was they were that close to death and when he opened the hatch and he saw the sun, and he felt the warmth of the sun rays. It showed in the movie how he just kind of sat on the perch of the spacecraft, and he just was looking at the sun and looking at the ocean waves around him and just sat there for just a few seconds. But it, 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 it left an indelible impression in my mind of what it was like to see life again for the first time. And that gives me what... I'm going to be like when I get to heaven. When I finally get there and I finally walk on those streets of gold and I can finally take that first breath of heaven air and just look around and say, wow, this is all worth it. You see, it's quite often not until we lose something or we come very close to losing something that we really appreciate what we have. These three astronauts realized that they had come very close to dying. In fact, it's amazing they made it back at all. So it's very understandable how their reaction to seeing the sun and the waves and the warm air, how it was so impactful for them and how overwhelming it was for them. It's unfortunate for us that we have to sometimes go through the hard times in life before we can appreciate the good times in life. It's unfortunate sometimes that, that we have to wait until something is gone or almost gone in areas of our life before we appreciate what we had. And this is true in many areas of life, in, our, in all forms of relationships, in our friendships with people, in our marriages, our relationships with our, with our children as they grow up. You name it, every relationship, there must be some sense of appreciation for the relationship while you have it, or it won't be long until it's gone. And then many times it's too late, and it may be broken beyond repair in this life. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe your life seems so hopeless and so out of control that you just don't think you're going to make it past today. And therefore, it's all you can do is just to hang on. And you're just hanging on to survive. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that there's more coming if you can just hold on a little longer. The more that's coming is amazing, more than we can ever imagine in our wildest dreams. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 7. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking to the Ephesian church here and he's, he's trying to express in this that we were at one time like those astronauts in that spaceship, that we were close to death. In fact, he said, we were actually dead. We were dead in our transgressions, that, that our natural uh, man left to its own self is dead. We may be alive physically, but spiritually we're dead. We're walking dead men, is what Paul is saying. And while we were still dead in our sins... God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, to be the perfect sacrifice, and to be the good news, to be the gospel, to be the forgiveness of our sins, so that he then can make us alive in Christ. And this is where God's grace is so important, because nothing happens on its own. Nothing happens on its own. If we were left to fend for ourselves in this life, we, we would be lost without hope, without a future, dead now in the present and dead in the future. But verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus did what we couldn't. Jesus accomplished for us what there is nothing that we could do to accomplish on our own. He gave us the escape hatch of this life on earth. He gave us the ability for us to accept eternal life. Nothing happens on its own. If Jesus wouldn't have come, we would have been left dead in our transgressions. We would have been left dead in our sin. Nothing happens on its own. The enemy will tell us differently. He will tell us, don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything. You're a good person. Nothing happens on its own. This has an impact on us more than what we can appreciate for a couple of reasons. Number one, it first took the love that God had for us to cause Jesus to leave the comfort of glory and glory of heaven to come to earth to be our Savior. We can say that very easily. But I'm telling you this morning that we really don't have an appreciation for what this means. I know I don't. As much as I try, as much as I try to envision heaven and its grandeur and its splendor, I don't really appreciate what Jesus left 
when he came to earth. I will never appreciate that until I walk the streets of heaven with him. Will I see it for myself and say, you left this for me? You left this for me? Wow. And we can say, well, it was only 33 years. But understand, Jesus changed forever so that I can change forever. He does not have the form that he did before he left. He has the form of man with scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side that causes us to believe and know that he made the sacrifice. He did something for me that I couldn't do. Nothing happens on its own. Secondly, unless I believe and act on this fact, Jesus' sacrifice means nothing to me personally. Just because he came and lived and died, unless I then take an active role in that experience of the gospel, it means nothing to me. Because even the devil and even the demons believe in God and they shudder. But yet they have no redemption of their sin. Jesus came to die for men and for women and for young people. He came to die for us. Therefore, nothing happens on its own. If that's all it took, if he did that, and if I don't do my part in receiving Jesus as my Savior, it's not enough. Let's let Jesus tell us in his own words what it means to, to do something with the sacrifice of what he was going to do for people. Jesus was still alive. He was still walking and living. And he was talking to Nicodemus at this point in, for, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a very learned Pharisee as we'll see. And Jesus is trying to, un, to, to explain to him what it means to have eternal life. Let's read this. John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he, when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. See, Nicodemus was an educated man. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He studied the prophecies. If there was anyone in the Jewish culture that should have been able to understand and recognize who Jesus was, it should have been Nicodemus. But yet, it's easy for us to criticize Nicodemus because we can say, wow, you weren't, you weren't getting it, were you, Nicodemus? You weren't catching it. Here, you're talking to the Son of God. You're talking 
to Jesus, the Son of God, and you're not getting it. But yet I look, I look at that passage and I look right back at myself and I see, I see the Word of God. The Word of God, which is Jesus. The Word of God is the living Word. It's Jesus. And I have the Word of God that I can read. And I can't criticize Nicodemus for his unbelieving if I don't believe it myself. How blind was he? How blind am I? If I can't read here and see here what God is doing, what the, what the power of the gospel is, the power of the good news, if I can't embrace that and see that for myself, then how can I criticize Nicodemus, who really had a lot less to go on than what I have to go on? I have no excuses. You will have no excuses when we stand before God come judgment day as to what did you do with my son? What did you do with him? Nothing happens on its own. Jesus did it. Now what am I doing with it? What are you doing with it? That's the question. Skip down to verse 16. And this is probably one of the most well-known Bible verses of all, in all the world. We see it at every football game. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, let me back up just a second, because we read verse 16, and that's where we typically stop, because maybe that's all we could memorize. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But we have to read on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, and that's where the world is with God. They think that God is a big mean God that's just out to condemn everything that's of any value. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to save the world. Nothing happens on its own. God sent Jesus to save the world. Now let's continue reading. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Nothing happens on its own. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Nothing happens on its own. Are you getting it yet? Are you getting it that you have a responsibility in your salvation? That you have a responsibility in this gift, in this power of the gospel, the power of the good news, that you must receive it or nothing happens. You must apply it in your life or nothing happens. Nothing happens on its own. That's the power of the gospel. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. 
But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. See, our natural man is darkness. And unless we choose to change, nothing happens on its own. Unless we see that we must make a change in our life and we must live it out seven days a week, not just on Sunday morning, but we must live it out seven days a week in our life before the promises of God are mine. I must live it out seven days a week. See, God gives us the ability to imagine things. And as I was preparing for this message, I could see myself, as I said before, walking the streets of gold, looking at the colors beyond what we could imagine today, breathing the air for the first time, eating the freshest of foods, and experiencing the flavors we can't even imagine in this life today, experiencing perfect eyesight, getting rid of these glasses and, looking, and seeing like an eagle. Seeing all the details of life, seeing the perfect colors, having perfect health, meeting old friends and family members. I want to read a passage out of this book. It's entitled Intramoros, My Dream of Heaven. I got this book from Lois. Actually, Lois, this is your book. I'll give it back to you. I promise. Well, actually, it's not your book. Your name's not in it. My name's in it. <laughs> I'll write it right now. But this is a dream that happened to Rebecca Ruder Springer in the 1800s. And it is a dream. And let me just say that. In fact, let me read it from her words. So let, me begin, let me in the beginning reassert that what I have hereto stated, that I have never claimed that this, is a, that this strange experience is either a revelation or, insp or an inspiration. It came to me during a period of great physical suffering and prostration, and I've always considered it as sent in compensation for that suffering. Be that as it may... It has been a great comfort and help. Thus, I can but think, if any meaning can be attached to the strained vision, that it is simply a lesson in a general way of what we may expect and ho hope for when we reach the thither shore. This is a pretty biblical book, so I have a lot to gain from this book, and it's a very encouraging book to read. So let me read a, little, a few passages from it so that you can get the picture of what heaven may be like. Because until we can really experience what heaven's like or envision it, we really can't experience the power of the gospel. I was many hundred miles away from home and friends and I and, and friends and had been very ill for many weeks. I was entirely among strangers, and my only attendant, though of a kindly disposition, knew nothing whatever of the duties of the sick room. Hence, I had none of the many delicate attentions that keep up an invalid's failing strength. I had taken no nourishment of any kind for nearly three weeks, scarcely even water, and was greatly reduced in both flesh and strength, and consciousness seemed at times to wholly desert me. I had an unutterable longing for the presence of my dear distant ones, for the gentle touch of beloved hands and whispered words of love and courage, but they never came. They could not. Responsible duties that I felt must not be neglected kept these dear ones much of the time in distant scenes that I would not recall them. I lay in a large comfortable room on the second floor of a house in Kentville, the bed stood in a recess at one end of the apartment, and from this recess a large stained glass window opened upon a veranda fronting on the street. 
During much of my illness, I lay with my face to this window and my back to the room, and I remember thinking how easy it would be to pass through the window to the veranda if one so desired. When the longing for the loved distant faces and voices became more than I could bear, I prayed that the dear Christ would help me to realize his blessed presence, and that since the beloved ones of earth could not minister to me, I might feel the influence of the other dear ones who are all ministering spirits. Especially did I ask to be sustained, should I indeed be called to pass through the dark waters alone. It was no idle prayer, and the response came swiftly, speedily. All anxieties and cares slipped away from me as a worn-out garment, and peace, Christ's peace, enfolded me. I was willing to wait God's time for the coming of those so dear to me and say to myself more than once, If not here, it will be there. There is no fear of disappointment there. In those wonderful days, I agonized suffering and great peace. I felt that I truly found, as never before, the refuge of the everlasting arms. They lifted me, they, up, they upbore me, they enfolded me, and I rested in them as a tired child upon its mother's bosom. One morning, dark and cold and stormy, after a day and night of intense suffering, I seemed to be standing on the floor by the bed in front of the stained glass window. Someone was standing by me, and when I looked up, I saw it was my husband's favorite brother who crossed the flood many years ago. My dear brother Frank, I cried out joyously, how good of you to come. It was a great joy to me that I could do so little, sister, he said gently. Shall we go now? And he drew me toward the window. I turned my head and looked back into the room that somehow I felt I was about to leave forever. It was in its usual good order, a cheery, pretty room. The attendant sat by the stove at the further end, comfortably reading a newspaper, and on the bed, turned toward the window, lay a white, still form with the shadow of a smile on the poor, worn face. My brother drew me, drew me quickly, or gently, and I yielded, passing with him through the window out on the veranda, and from thence it's in some uncountable way down to the street. Then I paused. There I paused and said earnestly, I cannot leave Will and our dear boy. They are not here, but hundreds of miles away, he answered. Yes, I know, but they will be here, Frank, and they will need me. Let me stay, I pleaded. Would it not be better if I brought you back a little later after they come? He said with a kind smile. Would you surely do so, I asked? Most certainly, if you desire it. You are worn out with the long suffering, and a little rest will give you new strength. All right, let me read on. I read all that to read that last sentence. Because many of you here today, are worn out with long suffering. And a little rest will give you new strength. Let's continue on. Frank takes her to heaven in this dream. Look, look where I would, I saw half hidden by the trees, elegant and beautiful houses of strangely attractive architecture that I felt must be the homes of the happy inhabitants of this enchanted place. I caught glimpses of sparkling fountains in many directions, and close to my retreat flowed a river with, a pla with placid breast and water clear as crystal. The walks that ran in many directions through the grounds appeared to me to be, and I after, afterward found out were, of pearl, spotless and pure, bordered on either side by narrow streams of pellucid water running over stones of gold. The one thought that fastened itself upon me as I looked, breathless and speechless upon this scene, was purity, purity, no shadow of dust, no taint of decay on fruit or flower, everything perfect, everything pure. The grass and flowers looked as though fresh washed by the summer showers, and not a single blade was any color but the brightest green. The air was soft and balmy, though invigorating, 
And instead of sunlight, there was a golden and rosy glory everywhere, something like the afterglow of a southern sunset in midsummer. As I drew in my breath with a short, quick gasp of delight, I heard my brother, who was standing beside me, very say softly, Well, and looking up, I discovered that he was watching me with keen enjoyment. I had in my great surprise and delight wholly forgotten his presence. Recalled to myself by his question, I faltered, Oh, Frank, that I, when such an overpowering sense of God's goodness and my own unworthiness swept over me, that I dropped my face into my hands and burst into uncontrollable and very human weeping. Ah, said my brother in a half-tone of self-reproach, I am inconsiderate. And lifting me gently to my feet, he said, Come, I want to show you the river. When we reached the bank of the river, but a few steps distant, I found that the lovely sword ran even to the water's edge. And in some places I saw the flowers blooming placidly down in the depths among the many colored pebbles in which the entire bed of the river was lined. I want, to, I want you to see these beautiful stones, said my brother, stepping into the water and urging me to do the same. I drew back timidly, saying, I fear it is cold. Not in the least, he said with a reassuring smile. Come, just as I am. Wow. Come, just as I am. I said, glancing down at my lovely robe, which to my great joy I found was similar to those of the dwellers in the happy place, just as you are, with another reassuring smile. Thus encouraged, I too stepped into the gently flowing river, and to my great surprise found the water in both temperature and density almost identical with the air. Deeper and deeper grew the stream as we passed on until I felt the soft, sweet ripples playing about my throat. As I stopped, my brother said, a little farther still. It will go over my head, I expostulated. Well, and what then? I cannot breathe under the water. I will suffocate. An amused twinkle came into his eyes, though he said soberly enough, We do not do those things here. I realized the absurdity, absurdity of my position, and with a happy laugh said, All right, come on, and plunged headlong into the bright water, which soon bubbled and rippled several feet above my head. To my surprise and delight, I found I could not only breathe, but laugh and talk, see and hear, as naturally under the water as above it. I sat down in the midst of the many-colored pebbles and filled my hands with them as a child would have done. My brother lay down upon them as he would have done on the green sward and laughed and talked joyously with me. Do this, he said, rubbing his hands over his face and running his fingers through his dark hair. I did as he told me, and the sensation was delightful. I threw back my loose sleeves and rubbed my arms, then my throat, and again thrust my fingers through my long, loose hair, thinking at the time what a tangle it would be when I left the water. Then the thought came as we at last arose to return, what are we to do for towels? For the earth thought still clung to me, and I wondered, too, if the lovely robe was not entirely spoiled. But behold, as we neared the shore and my head once more emerged from the water, the moment the air struck my face and hair, I realized that I would need no towel or brush. My flesh, my hair, and even my beautiful garments were soft and dry as before the water touched them. The material out of which my robe was fashioned was like anything that I had ever seen. It was soft and light and shone with a faint luster, reminding me more of silk crepe than anything I could recall, only infinitely more beautiful. It fell about me in soft, graceful folds, which the water seemed to have rendered even more lustrous than before. What marvelous water! What wonderful air! I said to my brother as we again stepped into the flowery sward. Are all the rivers here like this one? Not just the same, but similar, he replied. We walked on a few steps, and then I turned and looked back at the shining river flowing on tranquilly. Frank, what has that water done for me? I said, I feel as though I could fly. 
He looked at me with earnest, tender eyes as he answered gently, It has washed away the last of the earth life and fitted you for the new life upon which you have entered. I love that book. And it goes on and it describes heaven and it describes their home and it describes what the, the mansion that, that she saw in this dream. See, until we can envision our life in that, we really can't experience the power of the gospel because we see our life torn up in little pieces, in little shreds, that the enemy just wants to make those so big for us that we can't get past that. So what do we do about this today? If I'm going to be able to experience that kind of eternal life, that I must live a productive Christian life here today before that day can become a reality. It gives me reason to live and work hard today with the expectation of this promise to be. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. We see Paul's heavenly perspective here as well. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. If we look back in the first few verses that Paul's talking about, he's thankful to God the Father who has blessed us with all things in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing. Before God even created us, he chose us. He chose all men. God would have it that no man would suffer hell, but nothing happens on its own. Every man has that choice. Okay, so God wants every man to experience heaven with him. And he, know, and he knows that we're special. He, we are special to God. He knows us. He chose us before all the problems in your life came to be. Before all the issues in your life came to be, God already knew you. He already had a plan for you. He knew these problems were coming. He knew they were going to be there. But he chose us. In him, as it says in verse 4, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, in love, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, we're adopted as sons of God. We are in the family of God today. We are heirs with Jesus Christ. Doesn't that give you a feeling of belonging? No matter what's going on in your life today, understand that if you have Jesus in your life, you are a joint heir with Christ. All of the blessings, all of the spiritual blessings of heaven and earth are yours today because you are a brother of Christ, because you are part of the family, because you are accepted just as you are. You don't have to change who you are. 
You don't have to change your personality. Jesus came just the way you are because he is a place specifically designed for you to be in that place of perfection the way you are. He'll change you. He'll make you into what he wants you to make you. It's not that you're going to live in your sin. It's just you don't have to clean yourself up. He'll do the cleaning. He will wash you into that river of life. But you just come as you are in that special way and that God will do the rest. This, uh, this past week we were down in, in Hillsdale with uh, Summer and Tim and, of course, our newest little family member, Joel. And uh, one of the evenings um, I was holding her after Summer fed her and I had the responsibility of putting her to sleep, which was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to play with her. Um, but it was my job to put her to sleep. So I was alone in the living room as others were getting ready for bed and it was the lights were down low and I was in a rocking chair and, and uh, it was just me and Joelle and uh, Joelle, I call her Joelle. And, I, and she and I were having one of those bonding moments. Well, she was only a month old, but she and I are bonding, okay? We're soul sinking here. And our eyes were locked in each other as hers were starting to get a little droopy. And in those few moments, I began to imagine what her life was meant to be. That God had formed her. That God had chosen her already. That God already has a plan for Joel. He already has a purpose for her life. She's only a month old, but God already knows what he wants her to be. He already has a husband picked out for her. He already has a family appointed for her. He already has a job for her to do in the church. He already has an occupation. He already has heaven in mind for her, and she's only a month old. I, lay, I sat there for a few moments. Nobody was there. And I just looked at her, and I just prayed. I said, Father, watch this little girl. Protect her. Keep her. Keep her from the enemy's snare. Protect her. Bless her. Help her to make the right choices. Nothing happens on its own. See, God has the plan. But I have to walk in it. She will have to walk in it. My job as a grandfather is to help Summer and Tim raise that little daughter to walk in the plan of God. And to pray, right, grandparents? And to pray that they then would make the right choices in life because nothing happens on its own. The power of the gospel is powerful. It's powerful. Through the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. This is so amazing. In accordance with the riches. Imagine how rich God is. Can you even begin to imagine how rich God is? That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. God lavishes his goodness on us. He isn't measuring it out with a, 
a little tea dropper. He doesn't just give us a little enough. He lavishes, he lavishes it on us. The verb meaning of lavish is to be extravagant with something, to be abundant, to be overly generous. That God gives us the riches of something is to be abundant and overly generous in all the riches of his grace, his forgiveness. Without restraint, he pours upon us his grace of eternal life and the blessings that are beyond our imagination. See, it doesn't make any difference who you are today or what you've done or what you have or don't have. If you're living for Jesus, you have an extravagant, unrestrained future of unimaginable blessings that God has in store for you. And he is going to keep you to the end. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God. Nothing happens on its own. You're the only one that can walk away from it. You're the only one that can take you out of it. There's no power on earth that can take me besides myself. Therefore, I have a responsibility to myself, to my kids, to my grandkids, that I have to live a righteous life. I have to live that way. I have to continue to make good choices in my life. I have to, be, I have to, to, to live a life that is holy and blameless before God. But then expecting his forgiveness when I fall. Because I'm not perfect. And neither are you. But God's grace is sufficient. See, Jesus came for all men that all would be saved. The power of the gospel is enough for all of us. Just like that saying we sang all earlier, his grace is enough. His grace is enough. Jackie, if you would come, please. Yet if nothing is done with this awesome power, nothing happens in your life or in those around you. God gives us the good news. He gives us the gospel so that we can first accept it, then apply it, then spread it. Jesus lived life, and we must also live life in a similar fashion. But what I find so interesting is this. Jesus lived life here in this order. Jesus came from heaven. We already talked about heaven. We had talked about the grandeur and the splendor of heaven. Jesus left heaven, all of heaven's grandeur and splendor. Jesus left it to come down to live a life on earth. A perfect life. And then he died a sacrificial death for us. Our life, we have to take it in reverse order. I have to sacrificially die to my sin, to my nature. I have to put my own earthly desires, my own earthly passions, I have to die to that. I have to die to my flesh so that I can live a perfected life in Christ so that then I can go and enjoy heaven forever with him. You see, it's, see it's, a, it's a complete circle. Jesus came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a sacrifice. I then pick up in the death. I die myself, live a perfected life. I go to heaven. See the circle of life there? How that just, it, how it, it, it ingrains it? But I have to first die. I have to first put my human nature to death. I can't play with sin. 
I can't play with it and think I'm going to be good enough because of who I am, because of my name, or because of how much money I have. I have to put it to death. I have to put it away. If I'm going to have eternal life, I have to die to myself here first. And then I have the promise of heaven. What a great trade. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the good news. As we get ready to close this morning, let me ask you a few questions. Now that we have a better understanding of the gospel and what it means, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Are you really living it out? Have you really applied it in your life? See, nothing happens on its own. If you don't take a step, if you aren't living it out every day, nothing happens on its own. Would you stand with me? And I want to just take the next few minutes and I just want to open the altars because I believe the Lord has some work He wants to do in our lives. I believe that He wants to come and I think He wants to give us a vision of heaven today. A vision of future life today. But until we can understand that we must die first to our flesh, that vision means nothing to you. So I want to open the altars for those that need to invite Jesus in their life, maybe for the first time. I also want to open the altars to those that want to invite Jesus in their life for the second time. And then I want to also open the altars to those that just want to pray. I'm just overwhelmed with life. I just can't seem to get past my problems. I'm so overwhelmed with stuff. The beautiful thing about God is that He lavishes on us His perfect will. He doesn't sparingly give it out. He lavishes it on us. Do you want it? Do you want it in your life? So as all eyes are closed, first of all, let me ask the question. Is Jesus in your life? Have you asked Jesus in your life? Is the Holy Spirit saying, this is the day for you, this is your time? If you need to invite Jesus in your life for the first time, would you just slip up your hand? All right. For those here then that maybe need to ask Jesus in their life for the second time or the third time, what about you? Most important question you could ever be asked, is Jesus in your life? Do you need a fresh touch this morning from Jesus? Do you need to know one more time that you have that fresh relationship with Jesus? Let me ask the question. If you need to be sure, would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand to the Lord? I see that hand. Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. It's so important that we do this. It's so important that you take this serious. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. 
Now for those that are just totally distraught with life, that are just overwhelmed with the complexity of what's going on around you. See, we can talk about heaven and we can get so so caught up in that that we can't really see tomorrow. But I know tomorrow comes for those, for every one of us. If you are just totally distraught, I want you to come to down here in the front. We want to pray. For those that also raised your hands, I want to invite you also to come to the front so we can pray. But I want to make this altar time a, a, a working time. I, I just want to make this a time where we can really um, do something because if you don't do nothing, nothing happens. Nothing happens on its own. If you really want it, if you really want Jesus in your life, you have to do something. So as we sing this song, for those that raised your hand, for those that want to just leave it all here, you just want to pour yourself out to Jesus and let him help you, let him lift you up so that you can have that vision of heaven. I open these altars that we can pray with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jackie, you can sing that song, and let's just, uh, let's just invite, them, invite all of us to the altars that would come and pray in Jesus' name. Just as-